Support for this podcast comes from the Netflix mystery movie Handsome. Jeff Garlam is handsome. Detective Gene Handsome, that is. Follow him through the streets of L.A. as he tries to solve the mysteries of homicide and his own life. Handsome, now streaming on Netflix. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the deputy editor and chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson. And uh, Ann, you're out in Canada now. The film festival scene just keeps moving along. We'll get our big climax to the season with Cannes. But right now you're at a documentary festival, Hot Docs. So tell us a little bit about that festival and, and what are some of the highlights so far? Well, it's it's an interesting festival. It's fun because it's it's basically centered in the old um, Yorkville area of Toronto, which is where the old Toronto Film Festival used to be based. I'm even at the Park Hyatt Hotel, which I used to stay at in in the old days. It wasn't as fancy uh, then as it is now. I was on the short jury, so I had a fun session with. Uh, my fellow jurors, and, and we, we uh, hammered out some winners, which, which will be announced on Friday night, so I can't talk about it yet. But I saw 33 shorts from all over the world, and some of them were how, really how bad. Much, how much time was that? How, it how much, took a while. It took, I had, I, because it I was at Tribeca, up. I had seen 12 features in theaters, so I had used up a lot of time doing that and uh, keeping up with my various other responsibilities. So there, there was some serious binging going on. <laughs> let me get, let you know a little industry circuit I've picked up on. When they ask you to be on the short film jury, everybody always assumes that the short film jury is the easier one because the films are short. No. It's actually, I mean, I've, I've sat through three hours of short films before just because I was, came down for the day and I figured I could pull it off. You know, whereas a feature film lineup, you got maybe five, six, seven things, and you're going to watch them anyway. It's kind of a funny irony there. But you get to see short films, which not everybody always gets to do, so there must be value in that. In the end, you do see about four or five things that you were really, really glad <laughs> that you saw. And, and by the way, the program here does feature uh, some of the films that were at Sundance, like Unrest, which I still have to see, but I met the filmmaker, which is a movie about chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm-hmm. And uh, it has a, a lot of, of features that were at Tribeca, including the ones that, that I saw on the jury. So they have movies like Shadow Man, which was really uh, a good portrait of, a, of an artist. And I came in on the plane with uh, a guy named uh, Greg Campbell, who was coming from Colorado, who directed a movie called Hondros, uh, which basically um, is the other guy who was killed with Tim Hetherington, the photojournalist, Chris Hondros. And, and he's, so, so the other movie that I saw here was Hell on Earth, uh, Syria and the Fall of Syria and the Rise of ISIS, which is, uh, Sebastian Younger and Nick Quested's movie. So Sebastian Younger had been partnered with Tim Hetherington. So right. that's who, the relationship who died there. a couple years ago after they made Restrepo yeah. together. And I interviewed the two of them together. And so I always get sort of emotional whenever I see whenever I see. Uh, Sebastian Younger, but I always think that uh, movies that he's involved with are going to be good, and I wasn't disappointed. It was um, a National Geographic thing where they really scoured all the archives and the 
um, ISIS videos and they got a hold of a family that they could track and follow and, and sort of show their journey from leaving Aleppo to going to refugee camps and getting on a boat and trying to escape. You know, the, the whole thing is um, horrifying, of course, but um, working with writer Mark Ronro, they actually came up with a rather cohesive and uh, compelling uh, narrative that explains the whole thing, if, if anyone wants to know. And it's, um, also, it's coming up. It's worth pointing out that there are so many documentaries now being made about Syria that are so different from the way that it's being processed in the mainstream media. And you had Last Man in Aleppo, which is opening this week, was at Sundance along with City of Ghosts, which was a big hit there. Loved City of Ghosts, Matthew Heineman's uh, movie. Obviously, White Helmets, a short film that won the Oscar this past year. And I mean, there, were, there were White Helmets in, in this one. Um, and, and there's more. I mean, there's, there's, there's a, a long list of... Uh, there's Evgeny Ashkenazi's movie that also. That HBO documentary. I mean, I think it's actually really fascinating because when you talk about documentaries, there's different kinds of conversations that take place. Should it be seen as a genre or is it, is it even fair to say that you know, nonfiction storytelling is, you know, one thing and not another thing. We tend to associate it with talking heads and socially relevant issues and all these kinds of things. But what I think the, the real value in, in documentary storytelling is outside of, you know, just innovating with the form is that by positioning real life into a narrative experience, you can provide additional context. That's that, what this movie yeah. really does. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, if you were just it, reporting it gives the you facts, a narrative and a point of view yeah. and, a, and a kind of way to get a handle on something that seems... I mean, we get bombarded with this stuff every day. Right, you're like, who's And we almost who? try to resist looking at it to a degree because it's so upsetting. It's true. And, and, and also, I mean, you can appeal to... I think there is something to be said for appealing to emotions as a form of journalistic integrity. You know, especially now when we're talking about what's real, what's not real, the old stupid concept of fake news and how it's obscuring facts and so forth. But I think, you know, the, to, to tell a story about what somebody's going through in Syria as a means of advocating for, you know, new approaches to fixing that situation seems like the right direction. So what are some other uh, highlights? Well, speaking of what you just mentioned, um, uh, on the emotional side of the spectrum, um, um, a woman named Yancey Ford, this is her debut feature. Um, she made this film called Strong Island that Netflix is going to bring out later on that is a rather unusual approach to the whole question of dangerous African-American men who get shot by people um, and then the people who shoot them are not held accountable. So in this case she's talk telling the story, which is about 20 years old now, of her brother who was killed by a white guy. Yeah. And she gives this extraordinary portrait of her family, and she interviews her mother and her sister and her brother's best friend, and she puts herself on camera in a very naked, exposed kind of way that might even be too uh, in your face for some people. It well, was an I, interesting I, I decision. Saw, no, but I, I saw Strong Island at Sundance, and, and Yancey Ford, who, by the way, I believe is transgender and identifies as a he now, but did not before production on the film so that oh that wasn't that, made clear to me yeah, that's interesting well, it's, it's not clear in the film itself i, I think but it's, she was so queer been, in the film yeah, itself exactly but but there it is an interesting part of it because it, it's this first person mode of address that he uses to talk to 
the audience about this experience and it's not really clear exactly what happened. And as you watch the movie, it kind of almost feels like a true crime investigative piece, but it's an emotionally investigative piece. That's right. He's not really looking for, you know, the facts of what happened so much as some form of closure to it. And there's there's some confusion there in, in, in so doing, I would suggest. It isn't quite as as clear and and uh, procedural as, as one might like, but that was the choice that Yancey made. And, and so a movie like this, is, is, I, I guess it's a hard sell, but at the same time you see true crime stories, the making a murderer type thing, getting out there and getting people to talk about them. It makes me wonder if something like this could play off of that element. You know, a 20-year-old shooting story uh, in which justice was not served, somehow being an an access point to talking about a movie that's dealing with, you know, issues that are still very much relevant today. And uh, you can go to a festival like Hot Docs. I have to assume that these conversations are coming up all the time. Because as, as much as, you know, the Netflixes of the world are creating bigger audiences for documentaries, spending more money on documentaries, documentaries remain, you know, not the easiest sell when you compare them to a lot of other stuff that's out there. Certainly not, you know, as It depends easy as... on how topical they are. Right. And, and, and how, uh, I mean, it's interesting to me that Netflix would have picked this up, but again, um, it's wonderful because they'll get it to to a lot of people, and it has it has a strong point of view that should be should be told. Um, anyway, that's that's my that's my experience. You, on the other hand, went off to oh, and by the way, there was uh, the, what happens at a festival like this: networking. You know, you have you have everybody hanging out at the rooftop bar at the Park Hyatt, and where I I I. I hung out with Tom Powers, who was basically the doc czar the, the guru. <laughs> for TIFF and for Doc NYC and for Miami. And, uh, and, I, ba- and I, I saw the um, South by Southwest czar, Janet Pearson, and the, the uh, POV blog czar, Tom Roston, and, uh, you know, lots of folks hanging out up there. At, uh, and our old IndieWire buddy, uh, <laughs> Anthony Kaufman, the doc, the doc journalist du jour. Sounds like you're casting a reality series with all these <laughs> I'd watch it, but I don't know who else would do it. I don't think anyone else would. <laughs> so, yeah, it was... It's actually a young convention. It's a lot of people, you know, going to sing karaoke and, and uh, running around having fun, which is what happens at conventions. Not necessarily me, but a lot of other people. So I yeah as, as as you were starting to allude to I had a very Go different to, yeah you were of, the you were in you were in Stephen Kingland <laughs> Stephen Kingland Kingsville well it's funny because I was as I spoke about last week before it started I was at the Overlook Film Festival which is this festival that takes place at the Timberline Lodge in, in Mount Hood Oregon where they shot the exteriors for The Shining but you know King disavowed that movie so it's not quite Stephen Kingland so much as it was just sort of like an all-out celebration of horror and horror genre and the genre scene came out though there was one um, documentary that I saw over the weekend or a documentary of sorts and it was a, essentially a world premiere it was a 30-minute piece by Rodney Asher who did Room 237 a couple of years ago the uh, conspiracy theory movie about The Shining and this was an ex- uh, exclusive 
original programming that was done for Shutter, a subscription-based horror platform that was the main sponsor of the festival. And it may or may not be a pilot for more episodes, depending on how it's received. But it was really kind of fascinating because the, the idea of it was Primal Screen is people reminiscing on things that scared them when they were children, uh, things that they saw on screens, really. So, uh, you know, in this case, he was uh, riffing on the fear that children have of ventriloquist dummies and uh, spoke a lot about these kids. I mean, there was, the whole thing is interviews with kids, or people remembering when they were kids watching the trailer for the movie Magic, uh, the, the Anthony Hopkins movie, and how much it traumatized them to see this trailer on TV and uh, the way in which it so kind of... So Chucky would be another part of yeah, the genre? Yeah, there is, the whole thing is it sort of uses all these different clips laced together with um, uh, memories from people talking about you know the, the kind of unreal, uncanny valley-esque experience of looking at ventriloquist dummies and dolls in general, but using this trailer as sort of the focal point. It was just a really clever way to kind of tap into how childhood fears inform things that stay with you as you get older. And uh, the, the premise for Primal Screen, if they continue to do more of them, would be finding more and more things like that. Like the idea of, you know, what was the thing that freaked you out when you were a kid? What was the movie or the TV show or something like that, an image that stayed with you? And so they actually handed out surveys to people when they were at the screening, asking them that, so they, that could inform more, uh, future interviews that they do. And I just, I love that idea. I mean, this felt very innovative. Rodney Ash is a really talented filmmaker, and it was a great way to apply his talents. And it made me think, you know, Shudder is a really interesting example of one of those streaming platforms that's engineered to tap into a niche audience. And the horror genre is a really powerful niche audience. The festival opened with a Blumhouse movie called Stephanie, and uh, it closed with It Comes at Night, Trey Schultz's new movie. And both of those things played really well, and uh, I think uh, probably helped create a foundation of interest that will percolate uh, as the movies get out and get to more audiences. So I, I think it is worth talking about the Trey Schultz film a little bit more. Obviously, people know him from Cresha. Uh, which you know, kind of, you know, came out of nowhere. Exactly, it's that more people knew about it when A twenty four put it out than they would have known about it when it went to South by Southwest. It was still a products. pretty small movie. That's one of those movies where people who loved it were raving about the performance, but it really didn't get seen by enough it people to register on the awards radar. But well, I mean, your film critic circle gave it a, gave it a best first feature, Gotham Awards gave it an award, but it but was it, what was interesting about that was that when A24 bought that movie, they also signed on to produce his next film, which has now happened. And I think the what, what you see in Cresha, which was shot in this guy's house with his relatives and is about a family having an argument basically, is that He's able to make a lot out of very little, and this is a very natural next step. And then now he's got Joel Edgerton and Christopher Abbott, but it's still basically set in the house. Now it's a post-apocalyptic setting in which a family lives in fear of the outside world, and another family shows up, and things get complicated. But it's essentially the same kind of thing, this really clever, minimalist approach to storytelling that's really beautifully done. It has actually a Kubrickian sense of uh, ambiguity to it. Like there's a lot of these long, dark hallway shots where someone's kind of 
holding a lantern and kind of looking around to see, you know, what's going on around the corner. And it doesn't even matter what the source of intrigue or, or suspense is. It's more about just hovering in that state of uncertainty. So it, it played really well. And I think, you know, on the one hand, maybe it's a hard sell because it's so bleak and, and unsettling. At the same time, it's about creepy things happening out in the woods. And A24 has experience with those kinds of movies because they did really well with The Witch. So I, I do, did get the sense that there may be a template for a movie like this, having launched it as the secret screening at Overlook. Well, there's certainly a smart demo for, for uh, horror films. Right. So if, exactly. if they catch that wave, they're going to be in good shape. Uh, speaking of, of horror films, tonight uh, there's a screening of 7852, which was oh, the yes. Psycho movie. Did you guys see that one? Did it you? wasn't at Overlook. I saw it at, at Sundance, actually. Uh, and, and I think it's very interesting. It's not Room 237. If people place those expectations on it, they might be disappointed because it's less about theories than it is about analysis. But it, it, it's cool in the sense that it, you know, without giving away too much, it's it basically a lot of people breaking down the shower scene from Psycho, including the body double from that scene. But what's really interesting about it... Haven't is, gone through that since film school. Yeah, exactly. It's, it, it allows you to kind of understand the the art of that scene in a way that I think a lot of people take for granted and it breaks it down really well. No, that would be fun for me. I'm a total wonk for that sort of thing. Hopefully I'll I'll catch that tonight. Now the other movie that's opening this weekend is Laura Poitras's follow-up to her Oscar-winning Citizen Four, which we've been waiting for for a while. It's Risk. It's about Julian Assange. And uh, you you reviewed it. I interviewed Laura uh, this week and and did a whole sort of behind the scenes on how she came to completely overhaul the movie that you saw last year at Cannes and I saw earlier than that at the New York Film Festival about 25 minutes of footage when it was actually designed to be an episodic TV series. And so frankly, it's gone I, through several different yeah, phases. Frankly, when I saw it at Cannes, I could see the the episodic roots of it. I mean, it was a chapter-based movie. There was so much footage, uh, years worth of footage, and that was impressive, and I thought that it did a good job of sort of sketching out what it's like to be in the room with Assange, how he kind of rationalizes what he does. Didn't ask any hard-hitting questions, but, you know, I have to confess to have been seeing that with, you know, first quarter, first or second quarter 2016 eyes. In other words, pre-presidential election, pre-DNC email hack. You know, like all this stuff. This that... benefited hugely. It's so clear to me that it came. It, what I love the movie. I, got, I, I just absolutely love the movie. I love the way that she inserted herself in the narrative. Um, and basically, the first two thirds of it are what you saw, sort of edited tighter. And the last third is new stuff that totally have to do new. with the election, have to do with these revelations that came out. Um, you know, linking his sexual. Uh, assault allegations that you know would, that's why he's hiding in the Ecuadorian Ecuadorian embassy. Why he is trying not to be extradited to either Sweden or the U.S. He he wants to not have to face those charges, and 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 he is is not um, <laughs> he's not very uh, uh, politically correct. There's a hilarious scene with a lawyer who's trying to get him to uh, speak correctly in front of, uh, uh, you know, if he gets questioned. And, and, and he, he's, he's totally a pig, you know? I mean, just awful. And then the other thing that happens is that Portress found out two weeks after Ken that this guy, 
Jacob Applebaum, who she had interviewed in 2014 in the movie, and she had to admit on the um, narrative soundtrack, her voiceover, that she had a brief involvement with him yeah, because I mean, I he that was, was under charges of sexual assault right, right. And, and misbehavior. And, and, and these rumors were going around and stuff, so it kind of... But, what, but she only does... She does it just enough. It doesn't need to consume the story. I think what, what's notable about that is just... It, overall, it reminds you that everything you're seeing is subject to human flaws and that these are people who even if you know on some philosophical level you see them as these valiant defenders of freedom of information and all that kind of stuff there are limitations to how much that can be a successful initiative when it's clouded with other kinds of things and with Assange in particular I do think she does a good job of kind of confronting him to some degree about how much the the underlying purpose of what WikiLeaks is doing has been sort of mangled by his ego, by his sort of need to be fronting for this stuff and powerful. And her unwillingness to give him the Snowden documents is a good That's illustration right. of They that. came to blows over that. He was very upset about that, and uh, it, it fractured uh, their relationship. He was not happy with the cut that went to Cannes. And she, this was the deal she made with him in advance, that she would have autonomy and independence, of but course. would show him the movie and get his feedback. He wanted her to cut the scene with the this discussion of sexual harassment. He could see how bad it made him look. And, uh, and, and basically, he didn't like what he saw the second time either. So uh, they're not speaking. They're not on speaking terms uh, at this point. And, and I, I spoke to... Um, Alex Gibney, who made the Lance Armstrong movie, The Armstrong Lie, where he had to completely overhaul the movie and, and recognize that this man had been charming him and misleading him and manipulating him and that he had to figure out how to, to wrest the control of that movie uh, away from him and tell the, the true story. And that's sort of, what, uh, sort of what Laura had to deal with also. Yeah, it, I think it's a, it's a great sort of showcase for the tension between these two people as sort of a microcosm of the shifting relationship that a lot of people have had to WikiLeaks, and it's gonna it it should influence that dialogue. I'm curious to see how it does now that it's coming out into theaters. You know, Neon is the right fit for this movie in the sense that it's they the handled same, it yeah. last time, and right, when they were the in the yeah. in the radius realm, exactly. So that so that's a good fit. The question and is, Showtime is very enthusiastic about it. Yeah, so but, that'll but, be a good showcase for it as but, well. But you know, at the end of the day, I guess the, the real question with this is how many people want to go see a movie about Julian Assange? I mean, Edward Snowden. That was sort of like this crazy espionage story that came out in the midst of him being, if a divisive character in American culture, to a lot of people, a hero. Now I don't know if anybody really wants to Nobody see likes Julian Assange. Yeah. Well, the truth of the matter, I mean, the thing is, I'd like to think that the people who um, are fascinated by good documentary filmmaking and the issues that are raised by this movie, and she does very much, the very last thing that she added to the movie, the one that she canceled the screenings for, was the bit with um, Jeff Sessions uh, saying that he wanted to go after WikiLeaks. Right. You just get and a little bit of it right at the end of the movie. 
Right. And so she's basically bringing it back to a conversation uh, about freedom of speech and, 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 of course, the chilling environment that we're in uh, with Donald Trump, who is, who is, you know, he and Julian Assange are not that far apart in terms of being these larger-than-life narcissistic personalities who think that they control the world, that, they, that, that their belief that they know what's going on and that they should be able to manipulate it and that anything they do is okay is somehow uh, the way to go. And, and, and this movie very much shows the, the, that that is not true. The truest thing that Donald Trump ever said was, nobody likes the First Amendment more than I do. <laughs> Which is, doesn't mean that he won't try to get in the way of its application to other people, but it's true. I mean, there is something something valid about that. So, so we'll see how that one does. I do think it's... Um, Certainly fascinating counter-programming to Guardians of the Galaxy, which is... I was going to say, we don't have to worry about how uh, James Gunn's second go-round in the Marvel Universe is going to do at the box office. I think the the low uh, prediction, according to, to our box office guru, Tom Brueggemann, is $150 million. That's okay, you know. He'll get to make a third one, so... No, I love the movie. I can't say, you know, it's not as good as the first one, of course. I mean, that's impossible. What was so amazing for someone like me with the first Guardians was simply not knowing anything about it. I had no idea who these people were or these characters. It was not like coming into Spider-Man or or Batman or some other uh, established superhero uh, comic book made movie. This one was fresh. And, right. Well, and these were characters that you had to be a really diehard to know them and know their mythology, but it was, I think, a brilliant gamble in terms of exploring this storyline was that it allowed them to create this autonomous set of stories that had no reason for Thor to make a cameo or anything like just wasn't tied yes, in with their exactly yeah. very very much in their own space universe which is very different from from the other ones and so they're back there and they add a new character in the form of Kurt Russell who is fantastic in this as one of several father figures um, yeah, he's okay let's let's dial I loved it <laughs> He gets to look young in the first scene, so he's got that going. They for they play around with the visual effects, and then and then there's uh, you know the the semi romance with with Zoe Saldana and Chris Pratt, which is amusing, and the new uh, '80s music track, which is amusing, um, and and Baby Groot, a total win, and of course my favorite supporting actor. Uh, Michael Rooker um, as the other father He's funny. figure. They're all funny. I laughed plenty of times. I felt like I was watching something pretty redundant in other ways. I thought that some of the dialogue where they tried to recapture the uh, banter between the characters was clunky. It's it's imperfect, but it's visually astonishing. I mean, the first the first battle, the opening credit sequence, it, it's so cool because it's like all the crazy battle stuff is in the background and you're watching Groot dance in the foreground. I just found that kind of level of visual invention to be really exciting. There's a lot of good so. stuff with, with Groot. Groot is a great character. Uh, and then the other, I mean, just, and also totally animated, you know, which is, which is cool. I mean, Raccoon um, is, is Rocket Raccoon or whatever. He's, he's more uh, of, a, of a standard issue. Don't call him uh, a raccoon. He hates that. Motion pick, motion capture kind of thing going on with, and then there's Bradley Cooper doing the voice. Uh, they they have a different actor on set doing the 
actual motion capture, and then Bradley Cooper gets to waltz into the sound booth. But um, I enjoyed it. I don't, you know, what's not to like? Everybody's going to have a blast. They're they're literally, I mean, there may be a few indie wire readers who will dutifully go to see Risk this weekend, but uh, I think it's going to be Guardians of the Galaxy all the way. Well, we already talked about The Lovers, but that's also opening this weekend. So for people who are like, I don't want to see Julian Assange, I don't care about superhero movies, he got a nice little rom-com of sorts you can check out too. So I would not put that in the rom-com category. I laughed. I thought it was funny and awkward. It was, I liked it fine, but it was not. <laughs> it's a total comedy of remarriage. Ernst Lubitsch would be proud. He's smiling down from somewhere or another. It's not on that level, but I do think that Deborah Winger and it's, it's, Tracy it's a, Letts have a great chemistry. Totally. No, it's, it's a Lubitsch gateway drug. It has, it has those <laughs> You are elements. out of your mind. I, I'm telling you. Most people don't even know what that means. Don't they, they listen to up. Eric on this one. I want you to see it, but don't expect sophisticated, uh, classic romantic comedy here. Not, 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 it, it isn't that, Eric, really, there isn't that much dialogue. I can't wait to hear what more people think if they go. In any case, next week we'll be talking about Cannes because it'll be our last opportunity to look over the lineup in anticipation of it before we're on the ground, bleary-eyed and sorting through very busy days. So I'm looking forward to uh, diving into that experience with you. And um, I know you'll get a chance to go back to L.A. briefly. So safe travels and rest easy. We need all the sleep we can get the next week. Indeed. Talk to you soon. Later. Bye.